Hey there, anthropologists and fans of anthropology alike. Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. And for more on the podcast and all the other content that we put out, check out our website at production.cullanth.org and cullanth.org. We all know, or at least we think we know, the value of a degree in history or anthropology or philosophy or any of the other aspects of the liberal arts curriculum. But what about these interdisciplinary programs? What about gender studies or Latin American studies or critical race studies? What is the value that these interdisciplinary programs can offer us? Well, today on Anthropod, we have Richard Handler, who's here to talk with us about his new article published in the May 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology entitled, Disciplinary Adaptation and Undergraduate Desire, Anthropology and Global Development Studies in the Liberal Arts Curriculum. Professor Handler was one of the founders of the Global Development Studies Program at the University of Virginia. In the article, Professor Handler not only offers a strong voice in favor of interdisciplinary programs, but he also says that anthropologists in particular have a great deal to contribute in making innovative new programs of studies for our students. Professor Handler, welcome to Anthropod. Thank you, glad to to be here. Your article emerges out of your experiences helping to found the Global Development Studies Program at the University of Virginia. For starters, I was hoping you could give us a bit of context. How did this program come about, and what sorts of things was it focused on? So the program came about through the efforts of a rather extraordinary group of students who decided, undergraduate students, who decided that they wanted this major, which they called Global Development Studies, because they wanted to work in that field, international development and no such major existed. This group of students came together about 2006, let's say, and you know that really for the last 20 years, there's been more and more of an emphasis among undergraduate students of, say, doing good in the world. I correlate this with neoliberalism as the option for government and political action became more and more discredited in the eyes of young people. Their thoughts turned to free market solutions, so they have this notion that they can go out as individual human beings and fix problems. So it came from the students. I I was the dean of the undergraduate college at the time, and it was my job to help people who had curricular initiatives in mind. And so I kind of got to working with them. And we put together a student-faculty committee, and we came up with a curriculum, and eventually we got it passed, and I became the director of the program. But I would stress that this really came out of student sentiment. It's very rare at UVA, and presumably at most large universities that students have the gumption and the organization to stick with a project and create a curricular program. They're they're not here for long enough to do that. So this was a very unusual group of students, maybe an unusual moment, and um, we started a new program. Let me ask you a question on method, because I think many people may still have the image of the classical anthropologist working with the rural tribe, and even many people who are familiar with modern anthropology may have the image of ourselves as working more with community organizations or NGOs. How do you, as an anthropologist, approach the university as a field site? The university as a field site? Well, as anthropologists do everywhere, you pay attention to what the natives say and do. It's pretty simple. 
I was a dean for 10 years. I'm not a dean anymore. I'm now just merely the director of a program. And I was quite fascinated by the way bureaucracy works, by the, the, the social structures of bureaucracy, the, the routinized activities of bureaucracy, the way people in bureaucracies or in educational organizations interact with each other, students, faculty, parents, donors, administrators. For me, it was just a kind of natural extension of of being an anthropologist and paying attention to whatever local community you're in. Let, let's not forget that while the Bongo Bongo may be a local community of, you know, 400 people in an isolated place, the University of Virginia, it's 20,000 people. It's not a very big place and it's not a whole lot of people. And if you frequent one or two or three or four or five offices and settings, you're you're in a fairly small world and you can pay attention to it. So that was not a stretch of the imagination for me. I should should also say that a lot of my own work as an anthropologist, I don't conform to the public's image of what an anthropologist typically is. I've always worked in North American settings in bureaucratic organizations. I've studied museums. I've studied nationalist movements. So for me, paying attention to modern locations and modern scenes and paying attention to them anthropologically is routine business. So did you see parallels between the methods you used to develop this piece and the methods you used, say, when you worked on Colonial Williamsburg? Well, yes, in the sense that what the anthropologist does, I think, which makes him or her different a little bit from the ordinary native, is that we try to pay systematic attention to what we're perhaps interacting with on a day-to-day basis. We try to organize our thoughts about it. We try to think about it in relationship to the social theory that we've learned as anthropologists or to the other places we've studied as anthropologists. Now, in particular, in coming as I've done to write about students, undergraduate students and their desires and the programs we have created for them, at a certain point in the research and the writing, I began systematically looking at what students were telling me. So I talked to literally hundreds of students a year about their interest in doing some kind of work in the development field or doing some kind of good work in the world. And when they walk into your office and you're just chatting with them, maybe you're not being very systematic about keeping track of it. But as I turned my attention towards anthropological analysis and writing about these issues, I had to organize my understanding of what these students were telling me. So, for example, global development studies as a major has been around that we're in our fifth year and several hundred students have applied to our program to gain access to our program. It's an honors program of a kind, and which means students have to apply for it. They can't just declare that they're going to major in this topic. They have to write an essay, and we, we review their application, and some students we accept, and some students we don't. And that, that, by the way, is a resource question. I don't take comfort in turning people away, but given where we are now, we can only accept some of the students who come to us. Now, those students write write an essay for us. So I have several hundred essays from students that I've read over the years, and I went back and reread every one of those and analyzed them to figure out what the key themes, the recurring ideas and images and metaphors were. So that's a way of systematically interacting with people that I interact with casually every day. 
What sorts of career paths do people who graduate from the University of Virginia with a degree in global development studies go on to do? You know, I see two, three hundred students a year who walk in my office and say, I'm thinking of majoring in global development studies. Could you tell me something about it? And maybe the second or third question is, and you can see their parents standing behind them, what can I do with this major? I say, well, I happen to have records of what my students are doing. And the simple answer is they, I'm talking about maybe 80 students at this point, because the first graduating class was 22, and the second graduating class was 25, and the third graduating class was 33. So that's, that's the number we've graduated, so that's about 75 students. About a quarter of them actually go into development work. It's hard to get into that world, especially since the collapse of the economy. A lot of them start out in unpaid internships. They go to places like Washington, D.C., or maybe back to their states and go to the state capital of their state, and they they get unpaid internships that do, in fact, turn into paying jobs eventually. So actually, some of them do go into development work. And then they decide, after two or three years doing that, whether they need to go back and get a master's in development studies or a master's in international affairs or a PhD in anthropology, for that matter. So that's one group. A second group is the ones who go to Teach for America and Peace Corps. So Teach for America is incredibly well organized to recruit students that have these kinds of sensibilities. But every year, two, three, four, five of them go to Teach for America and one or two go to the Peace Corps. A third group goes into business. Some of them do become cynical and they say, I can't do anything in development better that I, I might as well go make some money. Or they say, I'm going to go into business because I want to learn some business skills, and then I will be able to take those skills into the nonprofit world. And then the, the last quarter of them go to graduate school, but they tend to be professional schools. So journalism, law, public health, public policy, business. That's the fourth category, professional master's programs. Now, I can imagine two different sorts of objections that people might have to your description of the Global Development Studies program at the University of Virginia. On the one hand, I can imagine some people who say that these are young people trying to do some good in the world, and why would we want to critique that? Why would we want to do anything that might discourage them? On the other hand, I can imagine some people who are very well versed in the literature about the violence of neoliberalism, about the violence of humanitarian interventions, saying that these kids are part of the problem, that they're doing more harm than good. In your article, you chart a much more nuanced view of things. Could you explain a little bit about how you view your students' desires to give back? Sure. And of course, I, I learned this over time. I had to figure it out. I'm still figuring it out. But maybe the first thing to say is that in universities generally in the United States, there is a kind of celebratory promotional discourse about the wonderful things that our students do. There is not much room in official university discourses for a critical evaluation of the kinds of projects that students carry out or desire to carry out. And even though universities are one of the few places in modern society where different kinds of critical thinking and discourse can exist, they don't exist at the kind of managerial or bureaucratic or administrative level of the institution, which the purpose of which is not, not only to graduate students and get things done, but it's to raise money and impress donors and find the resources to keep the place afloat. So you're not going to find a critical evaluation of students' desires to do good at the level of sort of official university discourse. You won't find it on any website. 
so that that's the first thing. The official discourse celebrates these students. Now, the students themselves don't know any better. They think that their desire to help and their energy and their goodwill and their initiative is enough to solve problems as they think about these things. And keep in mind that, as many, many anthropologists have said in different ways, American students come from an individualist culture and they are not taught to think about society. They're taught to think that individual initiative is what makes the world go around. They're not taught to realize that individuals themselves and their initiatives are actually socially grounded and socially constructed. They're not taught that way. So it makes sense that they come into the class with these kinds of naive ideas about fixing things. Usually the kids that are inclined in this direction are among the more liberal students of what is generally a conservative student body. And again, that's probably true of most elite universities. So they're willing to entertain the idea that the world is an unequal place, that bad things happen, that efforts to help may go awry. But they kind of deeply believe that if you just do it right and if you're culturally sensitive enough, you can change the world for the better. So that requires an anthropological teaching at the beginning course of study in global development studies to kind of shake them out of this complacency. And anthropologists are almost uniquely well-suited to teach this, uniquely among the liberal arts disciplines, because we have such a deep sense of how fragile or how contingent or how unrealistic in some ways the students' beliefs and presuppositions are. Now, I've taught introductory anthropology or anthropology actually at all levels for many, many years. I've been teaching full-time since 1980. So I know how to do this, and not everybody knows how to do this, but I have a teaching method which says pretty bluntly to the students, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't understand your basic assumptions, and I'm going to teach you about those basic assumptions in ways that are going to shock and upset you, but you've got to trust me because you work with these ideas and you'll, you'll get it, and you'll come out with an enhanced understanding. And I guess because of my experience as a teacher and because I like to teach, I can usually get them to trust me enough to go along with this process. Now, in the first semester of global development studies, there's usually a curve where they get really mad at me. They get angry at me for kind of taking away their illusions, and they get very cynical. And we do a whole lesson or a whole series of discussions on the fact that to be critical is not the same as to be cynical. If you sort of pull out the props of their self-image and you say to them, you know, you may not be able to go to Bongo Bongo and fix their water system or fix the human rights abuses. They think you're being cynical, whereas I want to teach them that to be able to see why you might not be able to do that is to think critically. It's not throwing your hands up in the air and saying nothing can be done. It's thinking critically about how the situation is much more complicated than you thought it was, so that perhaps sometime in the future you can do something that has a chance of making the kind of difference you want to make. So anyway, you have to have a teaching style and a set of theoretical understandings that allow you to challenge the students' presuppositions about their own moral goodness, about their right to go and fix the world, and about their ability to go and fix the world. And you have to do that without alienating them completely. You can make them mad, but you can't alienate them, and you can't humiliate them. So it's, it's all about teaching uh, technique and teaching, and the love of teaching, actually.
Well, what about the more cynical reaction, which says, you know, these are people who are part of a violent humanitarianism. These are people who are part of the neoliberal system. Why are they important to, to cultivate in this manner? Our students? Because yeah. they're our students. What more do you need to know? They're our students. They come to us to learn something, so let's teach them something worth learning. That's what you should do, and it seems to me that's what we anthropologists should do in every course we teach. And I think that's the place that anthropology occupies in the curriculum. The problem is that anthropology, I think in many places, doesn't make use of what it knows to hit the students right between the eyes and really educate them in a way that's going to change what they do in the world. And I feel that I'm, I've been given this gift by the students who founded this pro It's not I who thought of this program. I never would have imagined such a program. I'm not a development anthropologist. When I, I don't know anything about development. When I started this, I certainly didn't know anything. And I said to myself, you know what? Anthropologists know about development. <laughs> of course, I was right. We do kind of get it. But they gave me this gift of organizing a curriculum for them focused on what they wanted to learn and what they want to learn turns out is not exactly what I had to teach them but what I had to teach them they've come to, under to understand as being critical to what they wanted to learn so in other words the difference is if you have kids who are majoring in anthropology you know how it works you go to college you got to pick a major the various kind of conventional majors you know they appeal to different kinds of persons so the kid who wants to go to law school is going to be a politics major. The pre-med is going to be a biology major. The kid who wants to find himself or herself will major in psychology. The kid who's a little bit hippie-ish or a little bit open to alternative experience or a little left-wing in today's world might end up majoring in anthropology or perhaps sociology or perhaps English literature or perhaps a version of history. It depends on what each discipline looks like at each particular school. So the kids that are majoring in anthropology, you know, anthropology isn't presenting itself to them as a discipline that can help them do something very specific in the world. It's presenting itself to them as a kind of attitude, a theoretical approach, an orientation to the world that may appeal to them. And if it appeals to them, fine, come and take our courses and learn about the bongo bongo and take a linguistics course and study some archaeology. The Global Development Studies students want something much more particular than that, right? They want to go work in the development world. What they didn't know they were getting from me was this sort of deep critique of it, but a critique that challenges them, engages them. I think some of them it discourages, but others I think it empowers. It depends on the student, but they like it, they, or they love it. They really love it. <laughs> the important point here is that the conventional disciplines are not speaking very directly to student desires and student understandings that conventional disciplines are satisfied to say to themselves we have a legitimate body of knowledge that we've built up and we have a legitimate orientation to reality and students should want to be exposed to this and to immerse themselves in it and that's not untrue and some students will major in history or anthropology or economics but especially in this present moment of what I would call neoliberal terror in the job market, where the students are scared out of their minds that a standard liberal arts degree isn't going to get them anywhere, they're looking for much more specific organizations of knowledge that they can take out into the world. And as I say, I've been blessed, or I was lucky, to be asked to create a program that did that, and then to be able to use anthropology to create the program in what I consider to be a politically smart 
and politically progressive way. You know, one of the more controversial ideas that you pose in the article is the idea that anthropology departments in designing these interdisciplinary programs and in designing their own courses and curricula for their students as well should be making active alliances with professional schools. Traditionally, social scientists have been reluctant to reach out to those more professionalized, more neoliberal side of our campuses, more skills-oriented side of our campuses. Why is it important for us in anthropology departments to take up these new sorts of alliances and strategies? Well, first of all, it's, a, it's tough going. And I think it's important for us to try. We may not be able to succeed, and we may find ourselves trying to make alliances with people who we will find are not the right people to make alliances with. It's important for market share, for pragmatics. When the students come to me and they say, I want to take an accounting course and I want to count it for the major, I have to think about whether that's a reasonable request and it might be for some of my students and I shouldn't dismiss it. So at the simplest level, you may have a student who wants to be able to count in his or her liberal arts program one or two or three professional school courses. And that's a reasonable conversation to have with a student. But let's go to the next level. Let me give you an example. Our Global Development Studies program actually has two tracks. One of them is development studies, but we also have a global public health track. And that's an alliance between me and Global Development Studies and our medical school, in particular, the Department of Public Health Sciences, which is the department that gives a master's degree in public health. This is a completely historical accident one of the key players in the public health science department is very interested in teaching undergraduates, which they don't usually do, and she's also very comfortable with anthropology. So it's kind of a natural alliance. So we created a, a second major inside global development studies called global public health, and we take just a few students a year, between 8 and 12 a year, and they take some courses in the public health sciences. Those are sort of lower-level graduate courses in the medical school. And they take some liberal arts courses, and they take some global development studies courses. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we graduated our first class of global public health students. Ten, ten people, and I knew them pretty well. And um, we had a great time. One of the things they talked to me a lot to me about was the way things are taught in the medical school. The way classes are organized, the way teachers carry themselves, the way course presentations are made, what counts as knowledge, the way statistical materials are used or not used. It was very, very different from what they saw in the liberal arts. In some cases, it frustrated them. In some cases, it intrigued them. But almost all of them said that it had been an incredibly valuable experience to be able to go back and forth between the medical school and the Global Development Studies program and compare the different kinds of knowledge. Now, they did tell me that they felt they needed the social science theory that they were getting from global development studies in order to place or critically evaluate what they were hearing and learning in the medical school because schools that teach professional routines aren't very good at teaching people to be critical of professional routines. Although in fairness to my colleagues in public health, that is a field where there's a tremendous concern with ethics and policy actually. So that field may be more predisposed than most professional schools to, to be open to this kind of thinking. But anyway, the point is that the students told me that they got something really valuable out of working with the two kinds of knowledge together. So that would be the next level of engagement. If the first level of engagement is that you don't make fun of a student who wants to take a business course or an accounting course, but you try to 
help them find ways to bring it into their liberal arts curriculum, then the next level of engagement is to, you know, you put together a combined program where they can actually use the liberal arts part of the program to think critically about the professional school part of the program. Now, a third level of engagement that I think is quite difficult to do, and we're not there yet, is to have a joint program with a professional school where the liberal arts knowledge would actually start to change the way the professional practitioners do their work. And that, I think, would take a long, ongoing collaboration with ongoing shared field projects between people. And I think we might get there with our global public health program because our partners are so, we're so attuned to each other and there's a lot of respect. You know, it might be very hard to do with a business school or an engineering school. It depends on, again, you know, all politics is local. It depends on who you're interacting with. This is important because we're educating our students and we want them to be able to use the critical thinking perspectives that they develop to think about other aspects of the world that we all inhabit, including the world of professional schools and professional routines. And it's also crucial because a lot of those kids, they want to go and work in those worlds. And they're going to use the degrees that they get from Chicago and Virginia to go and work in those worlds. So better that we should have them going and working in those worlds <laughs> with some ability to have a critical distance on their work than not. So I don't feel the need anymore to be purist about this. I'm quite aware of how resistant a lot of professional school knowledge teaching attitude is towards the kinds of critique that anthropologists might bring to bear. And as I said a moment ago, it depends on your interlocutors. You'll probably try a lot of alliances that won't work, but I still think it's worth trying. Now, one final remark about this, this has become a kind of mantra of mine at the University of Virginia. Professional schools think that what they need from anthropologists is cultural sensitivity. And I say that's nonsense. They need cultural critique. You know, they think that you put together a student project team to go and build a well in West Africa, and you have two engineers and a public health person and an architecture student, and then you throw in an anthropologist so you can have some cultural sensitivity. They think it's the kind of spice that, you know, allows you to communicate with the natives, not that you really want to communicate with them anyway, because you already know what they need. My position on that is that almost all of these kinds of student projects fail, go back five years later and see the state of the well that they built, and see the state of the inequality that remains what it was when you got there. So what we need is not cultural sensitivity, but deep cultural critique, which would allow engineers to understand why their hubris dooms their ambition. But that's a tough argument. <laughs> and, you know, it's an argument you have to work at. As you discuss in your article, interdisciplinary programs sometimes get a bad reputation. There are those who say that they're easy majors for those who can't do math, for those who can't buckle down and go through one course of study. However, in the course of developing the Global Development Studies program, you say that you developed a new understanding of the intellectual coherence of interdisciplinary studies. How has this experience made you value these interdisciplinary studies programs in new ways? You know what? I didn't say it negatively in the article, but it might be necessary to say it negatively. I'm not so sure I think that the interdisciplinary experiences are all that rich or wonderful. I think that the disciplinary experiences are routinized and unimaginative. 
it's not so much that the interdisciplinary is great, it's that the disciplinary isn't as good as it thinks it is. One of the things I say in the article is that, you know, the disciplines themselves are not necessarily intellectually coherent. Anthropology, God knows, is a hodgepodge of approaches and subdisciplines. What disciplines are is bureaucratically coherent. So a history department, an anthropology department, has a faculty and has faculty lines and has resources and can mount a curriculum for students and can organize the curriculum. And the students can take their 10 anthropology courses as their major and they're told which ones to take. So in our case, they have to take some archaeology and some linguistics and some ethnography and so on. And we conceive of that as an organized, coherent intellectual experience. I'm not so sure that students don't experience it as just another hodgepodge of courses. Now, of course, this varies by departments. My point is that I think disciplines rely on their bureaucratic foundations and solidity to create an intellectual coherence, which they may, in fact, not deliver. That's number one. Number two, any program depends on the imagination and the organization, of the intellectual organization and the intellectual rivalliness of its faculty. With global development studies, you know, I was trained at the University of Chicago, and for that I was trained in the great books tradition at Columbia. And so my orientation to social science is this kind of a deep liberal arts orientation where, you know, it's relevant to read Plato or it's relevant to read Montaigne or it's relevant to read Jane Austen. And I certainly do not think of myself as such a sort of towering scholar that I've mastered all these various areas, but I have a sense of how there are a set of, a set of big questions that can be pursued across the disciplines, and I have an understanding of why Marx can be a foundational theorist or Tocqueville for political theory, for American studies, for economics, for history, for anthropology, for sociology. So when I think of a curriculum in global development studies, to me it's a, you know, it's a a liberal arts curriculum for which it is my responsibility to create some intellectual coherence of mine and the faculty I work with. And there's no reason why an interdisciplinary program can't do that as well as a discipline-based group of faculty. And there are, I think, organizational reasons or bureaucratic reasons why discipline-based groups of faculty don't do it very well anymore because they don't have to ask kind of foundational questions about what their discipline is. I mean, you know, it's why in, an, in departments nobody wants to teach uh, introductory anthropology or introductory economics. I happen to love teaching out. I would rather teach introductory anthropology than the core course for the graduate students. To me, it's much more interesting to kind of present the basic message to non-specialists than it is to try to professionalize new specialists. But many, many departments have trouble finding people to teach the intro courses, and it's precisely because people don't want to think about, you know, where does the discipline fit into a liberal arts education? It's one thing, you know, to teach a course on, I don't know, the anthropology of religion. It's specialized. You know what the texts are. You don't have to plug that discussion into anything much larger than itself. But if you're teaching Anthro 101... You know, I spend the whole first week of Anthro 101 talking about the undergraduate curriculum. What's the difference between anthropology and sociology? What's the difference between the humanities and the social sciences? What's the difference between the liberal arts college and the professional schools? Nobody talks to students about that stuff. So the fun thing about an interdisciplinary program is 
you're kind of liberated to think about that stuff. And then what you find is not so much that the interdisciplinary program is a thing of shreds and patches, as it were. You have to figure out what you're trying to teach and what are the theoretical texts you need to use and what are the pedagogical methods you need to use. And you, you have to make it coherent as an intellectual project for yourself and your students. And that turns out to be a very rich and rewarding experience, I think, for everybody. And in many ways, it might be better than a major now, caveat, you can have a lousy interdisciplinary program that really is a hodgepodge of courses, right? Take two from this category and two from that category. And you can have a superbly organized disciplinary major. So I think people need to understand that an interdisciplinary program isn't necessarily less coherent, thoughtful, organized, challenging than a disciplinary program. But disciplinary programs aren't necessarily better in those respects. As long as we're talking about teaching method, you make a very strong case in the article for a teaching method which focuses in large part on the classic great books of oh, liberalism, sure. okay. on Marx, yeah. Durkheim, Weber, Boas. Why is it particularly important for you that they have a grasp of these classic texts rather than say teaching them more nuanced modes of communication, more nuanced ways of involving community leaders in creating action plans and budgets. So the second kind of teaching that you talked about, teaching community engagement, I'm trying to push my program to be able to do that in a more effective way. And in fact, we just raised enough money to hire a, what we're calling it, or thinking of as a professor of the practice, a geographer actually, who's worked for many years in development, his job is going to be to teach courses that explain to students how development organizations work on the ground and, and what are effective ways to work with them. And this is a guy with some sophistication. So I think the program of the future, or the programs I want to develop, it's going to have a strong component of what I want to call critical, theoretical, smart ways to teach community engagement and what the students think of as practical skills. But if we go back to your first question, what's the necessity for classic theoretical texts in the social sciences? The answer there is that students' prior task, before you learn to engage, you have to learn to how to think about the world. And learning how to think about the world is also learning how to think about practical routines in the world. Much professional school knowledge is recipe knowledge. Here's how you do something. I'm not interested in recipe knowledge. I'm interested in knowledge that teaches you how to think about recipes. So, for example, I, I don't want an accounting professor who teaches only accounting. I want an accounting professor who can teach the culture of accounting as well as how to do accounting. And, of course, there aren't very many people like that. But anyway, theoretical knowledge is knowledge that allows you to think about the way activities unfold in the world knowledge that allows you to think about how people do things at a level that's not the same as doing them. And that's what the social sciences are about in some way. Now, there's lots of bad social science, so you have to pick the social science that's good. And, of course, different social scientists would disagree about what that is. My own feeling about that, you, you mentioned, you know, why Marx, Durkheim, Weber, dead white males. I, mean, I, I could get crucified for saying this, but... Um, I think most social science wisdom repeats itself. It's true that you have to transcend the dead white males to understand really crucial formations like racial formations or class formations or 
gender formations, and that's pretty central stuff. But if you take social science over the last 150 years, you know, there's like eight ideas or six ideas. Or, yeah, I think there's like six ideas out there, and they keep getting reinvented with twists. So I don't know if you know, got my PhD from the University of Chicago's Anthropology Department in 1979, and one of my classmates was Rob Brightman, who's now at Reed. I don't know if you've ever read Rob's, I think it's a 1995 piece in Cultural Anthropology, which I think is called Forget Culture. It sort of reads through people like Bourdieu and shows how the Boasians said all this stuff in a slightly different language. So that's not true for everybody and everything, but the point is that there's a kind of classic literature that goes from, let's say, I'm going to start with Tocqueville, but you can start earlier or later if you want, with Democracy in America, which is 1840, goes from there to the present, and you... You find the good theoretical works that speak to you and through which you're able to speak, and then you use them to make students aware of how social worlds are put together and how you think about them. And thinking about them is not the same as doing them. So it's not so much that you need Boaz, Weber, Marx, Durkheim. You need good social theory. And other professors, other anthropologists, other young scholars might use other theorists but I would hope that they're trying to do something like the project I'm trying to do, which is to get younger students to be able to think, to kind of liberate themselves from practice in order to think about practice. Now, having said that, I have to say I was never a Marxist, and I was at Chicago at a time when symbolic anthropology, you know, Schneider, Geertz, Solins, Louis Dumont, Barney Cohn, people like that were ascendant, and... You know, Marx is never out of fashion, but Marx in the 60s, Marxian approaches had been elaborated into some pretty clunky sort of structures, which didn't do very well talking about symbol systems. And so it was pretty easy to dismiss a lot of that stuff. But only recently, actually, have I gone back to Marx and have been reading Capital in particular carefully and realizing what a sophisticated symbolic theorist Marx is. So Marx, when you're teaching 20-year-olds, what do you have them read? I've had them read selections of capital, but also, frankly, the Communist Manifesto, which is what everybody reads. But it nonetheless has those kind of wonderful phrases about capitalism expanding worldwide and, and, you know, everything is solid, melts into air. And that description written in the middle of the 19th century doesn't need much adjustment to be able to speak to 21st century globalization. And not only that, there's a section, you know, that I read when I was a student and bored the hell out of me. It's where he denounces kind of spurious socialisms, the, the conservative socialisms and the petty bourgeois social. And, you know, you sort of read this and say, okay, this is an artifact of the political arguments of his time and who cares? Well, <laughs> now after working with these students for five years, it's like, duh, I get it. Because these students are all desperately trying to find one of those reactionary socialist ideologies that they can cling to. Some variety of an apparently progressive ideology that will allow them to maintain their privileged position and yet speak to the extreme inequality that capitalism generates. So I now read those 
pages at the end of the Communist Manifesto and say to myself, wow, this describes my students. The point is that, you know, as many people now say, there's still almost nobody better than Marx for a certain kind of analysis of capitalism. So he might be a particularly pertinent dead white male for this major. Another one, by the way, is Tocqueville, who I think is just superb at analyzing modern individualism. There's just nobody better. Oh, he's lousy on women, but other than that. Well, the Global Development Studies program sounds fascinating and it sounds extraordinarily innovative, both intellectually and professionally. And I'm looking forward to hearing about how it develops. It, and as I tell my students, Global Development Studies is a development project. <laughs> and which means I have to raise money for it. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me on this podcast. All right, well, thank you very much for giving me the chance. It's been fun. We're still starting out fresh with this whole podcasting thing, so we would love to hear your feedback. Get in contact. Tell us what you thought of this show, who you'd like us to interview in the future, and what you'd like us to talk to them about. You can find us online at production.cullanth.org and cullanth.org, C-U-L-A-N-T-H. There you can leave us a message as a comment on our show notes. You can also find us on Facebook, where we are Cultural Anthropology. And if you can fit your thoughts into 140 characters, send us a tweet. We are at Cullanth. See you next time.